0: The advent of peace. The advent of peace. Last week we talked about the advent of hope, or I preached on that. This is going to be the advent of peace. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So uh, look at Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This sermon this week was really been birthed out of prayer. There's been some events, there's been lots of praying, and so I feel like this is what God gave me in my time of prayer. I know that that should be expected every week, but I'm highlighting this one. Um, This is a special one. Okay. Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? And this will be a sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Father, today I thank you that you have given us such a warm welcome into your presence. Father, if we have faith, the seed of a of the mustard seed, Lord, we could command a mountain to be removed, and it would obey us. Today, Lord, I pray that you'll give us faith in your word, Lord, that you will open the eyes of our understanding. Jesus, we absolutely need you to help us understand the divine perception of things. Lord, we do not come to this on our own. This is natural deduction. We need the Holy Spirit here in in your word. And so, Father, help us understand. God, I thank you that you have encouraged us to come. Lord, you didn't encourage us to offer something. You told us to come. And here we are, Lord, come in your presence. And Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit all over this room. Holy Spirit all over this room, God, there is need here. There is need in this place. Father, there is a need to know You. Father, there is a need to understand from Your perspective. God, there are major questions, oftentimes left on the back burner of life. And we need not just answers, but God, we need to hear from You, Father, that You would speak to us and that we would hear from You. Lord, this season brings for many, not joy, not hope, but for many because of losses in life and struggles in life, it actually comes as one of the most depressing and difficult times of the year. And I don't want to escape that possibility. could be right here in this room. And so, Father, I just want to trust You today that this Word will speak to our hearts and the Holy Spirit will animate the truths that will bring to closure some of these things that are troubling us and getting in the way of the joy of our Savior. And today, God, I pray, that You will birth in us the new birth of Jesus, and You'll give us new life from Your throne, and we're going to love You in this. Lord, enable me today, through Your anointing, through the Holy Spirit equipping me to be able to speak from Your inspiration. We give You all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. There's three things that I want to pick out when I want to talk about peace. Three things today, not that there's not plenty of more to talk about, but there's three main things that I want to focus on as I share with you this idea of peace. I want to make it so that we understand there is a difference from when Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. So if you think of that verse, what Jesus was basically saying is there's another peace. There's other kinds of peace out there, but not the peace that I'm giving. And I want to try and bring distinction there because if there's ever a time, not just in the events of the world, in the, the age that we live in, but if there was ever a time that we needed this message, it's right now. It's right now in the season of Christmas. It's also the age which we're living. We need to know the peace of God. We need this like we need the air we breathe. We need this like the next heartbeat we have. We need this peace. I don't know, you know, a lot of times, and I want to say, brothers and sisters, it's really important that we avoid Christian cliches when we're dealing with the realities of God. In a sense, what we try and do is bolster ourselves to believe something that for whatever reason we're struggling to believe you're better off to say, Lord, I just, I'm struggling to believe. Like the man that comes to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. Help me come to that place I need to be. And really when we're talking about this peace, this peace is a treasure beyond any treasure. And so we've got to remember that it's not something you can have a cliche in place of. Yeah, I believe I believe in the peace of God. Are you settled in the peace of God? Has it settled in your life? And filtered in the way Jesus intended it to? That's a big question. Three things. Number one, we have to deal with the fact that in the light of what Jesus said, the world is in conflict. The world is in conflict. Secondly, we need to know what true peace... We need to define what true peace is. We need a definition. Absolutely. Everybody's redefining everything today. Did you ever think we would live in a world where we would define... Male and female. Did you ever think that we would ever get to that place? So that if, if it's gotten that bad, trust me, every word that we read in God's word is trying to be redefined along with a generation that's that confused. And then lastly, I think this will just end this focus, and that is that it is paramount. Purity is paramount for peace. Purity. People don't have a lot of peace because they real, they're not pure. And I want to come to that. So the world in conflict, I want to read John chapter 16, verse 33. It says this, These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, I don't know about you, but to some degree, I think that's kind of mysterious. How did Jesus overcome a world that's still having conflict? We see it all over. I mean, I just expressed one of the main points. What is Jesus meaning by, I have overcome the world? What the world struggles with, Jesus has no part in, other than to deliver us from In other words, what Jesus is saying is that I have overcome the world. Anybody within the world that wants to step out of it can. And I will give it to them. And how many of us don't want to step out of the confusion and the warfare and the problem of the world and come to find peace with God? And if there is no God, and if there were no promise that Jesus said this promise was not true, we might as well just be looking for the quickest opportunity To find our grave. I don't want to live any longer. If that were true. But Jesus does. And He has. And it's beautiful because I think all over this room. I can say. I can look at people who say. I know what it's like to have the peace of God. I know what it's like to have that that peace sustain me. I know what it's like to go through. My own personal troubles. And sorrows. And tragedies. And find the peace of God triumph. In my tragedies. All over this room, if we could just testify in the favor of God like we did earlier this morning, we would spend all day here plus sharing about how faithful God has been in years past. And while we were doing it, we would recall some of the other past events that we haven't thought about. And we would maybe get out, some of us, if we have our journals and books of things that God has done in our life. That's tremendous that in the world we're living, and I get to look at the living example of what Jesus said in light of the world that I go face. You know, I've been around guys, and men and women who've both had that trouble in life where they don't have the peace of God. And it's so wonderful to know that it not only exists, but it's, it's alive and well. It's alive and well. We are to remember that we are in a spiritual warfare, not a natural one. As we were praying and talking about this event that happened here in the city, and there's going to be many more like it to happen. We're living in a world right now where it's going to continue to arise. And I wonder, church, where we're at within the framework of this. But we remember that going to city councils or going to other things and situations is only a very small piece to the part that we need to play when it comes to the conflict that's within the world. We need to be able to undo our own heavy burdens so that we can take on the burdens that are outside of us. And I remember I felt like the Lord spoke to me and I had prayed twice that day this week about that very, very situation. And the second time I prayed, I felt like the Lord said, pray for pray for your brothers and sisters that they don't deal in this battle just in the natural. Pray Ephesians over their life. Lord, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Do you not know that when you stand up and pray in the name of Jesus, when you walk with God, it is that there. Our letters can do no more good than just as, have, as if we had never written them at all. If we do not have God in His Spirit backing us behind what we're doing, we have to remember we're in a world with conflict. And while it's in conflict, while we're at war, we're not, we're not at war in our spirit. We're at peace in our spirit But we're at war with what's going on in darkness. We want to remember that we're not fighting, we are fighting for souls, not fighting with them. Yes, we have arguments and battles that we have to do with people, but that's not what this is all about. It is that we're fighting for them. If you are fighting with somebody that you're not fighting for, then you better stop fighting with them. Because when we're fighting for somebody, we mean their welfare, we mean their good, we mean the best of their life. And so I know that oftentimes family struggles and this year, in this time of the season, either you're going to enjoy family or you're going to have struggles with family. And you can't escape that path. But a lot of our struggles come under the headline of what somebody has done to hurt me. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know what yours is all about and I don't know what it is. But I could say this, you've got to let go of it. You've got to let go and you've got to give it to God. You got to let the pains of the past die off, and you got to give your time to Jesus, and you got to love the person that has struck you. You got to love the person that has cut you. You got to love them with a new love, because if there's ever going to be a resolve, it's going to be that love never fails. Love never fails. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's up there. Amen for that. For we do not wrestle. Against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's you. That's me. That's what we get to do. We get to be a part of that. You know, you have these, this is who I am. Well, let's just make this of who I am. I am one who stands in the gap. I am one who gets in the middle of the battle. I get in the thicket of the prince of the power of the air. I work a work in Christ. And this is the thing I love. I thought, Lord, it amazes me that you actually have a detour before you do a miracle. You could have just navigated around us and just gotten to it. You could have went and saved our neighbors and did everything but you included us in it, and so you decided to detour and call us in an upper room to pray, in a, in a time in our own lives to pray before you go and do it. And I, I wonder, it blows me away that God wants to use us in a place of prayer as the stepping stone before He does the miracle. I don't know why He does, other than I think that it intimately, deeply, intimately draws us into what God is doing. I want to be a part of that. So I'm broken and saddened when I meet with somebody who just doesn't have the heart and the love of prayer. And it's been sidelined because of life's difficulties as it were. Man, if you just understand your difficulties, take them before the Lord and let Him empty you of those pains. And then let Jesus emulate His will in front of you. And I'm overthrown. And this is what I say is the revelation of God is paramount to our times of prayer. Man, Lord, I need a revelation of heaven. I need the Holy Spirit to secure to me the realities that I don't see. There's not a physical understanding of. And so that I can embrace this as this thing has happened. There was one book that I read, and I love this. It says, uh, I think it was Andrew Murray on the blood of Jesus. And one of the things he talks about in faith, he says, faith acts as apprehending something, as already having received it, yet before it's yet realized and experienced within your body. That's how we come to God. God is like you don't need a physical evidence. And so what we do need is the Holy Spirit to help us hold on while we're doing it. And I would say this, for anybody who understands a little bit about intercession, understands what it means like to get down into the place of battle and prayer, you understand that it takes from you. You understand that sometimes, like I know there has been times for me that I was so gripped with an insatiable inability to stop myself from crying. There was such a a radical revelation, a very distinct understanding of something as if God were giving it to me that I couldn't get out from under the impression of it. And I felt like Jesus, if I could put it in words, I felt like what he was saying was, I need you to be here for that. This is my heart. And some of us have cheapened faith. Paul says, faith works by love. We've cheapened faith. I don't have to feel. I don't have to desire. I don't have to anguish. I don't have to burn. I don't have to feel compassion. I just have faith. Lord, pour into us, baptize us with streams of love that never go away. I mean gospel love. I mean sacrificial love. I mean that love. And I think the reason why is because we don't understand the necessity of the cross and the gospel. Sometimes we're just happy enough if somebody makes enough reformation for life to look Christian. We're like, no, there's something powerful about when Jesus gets inside of us and changes us. So here we need to remember in light of this verse that hell's tactic is to distract us. That is hell's tra- tactic. Let's get you off the spiritual warfare plan. Let's get you away from battling with principalities and powers. Let's get you fighting carnal. Let's get you fighting carnal battles with one another and then keep you there and then destroy you there, and and ruin your joys there, and take away your peace there. Or, that's hell's tactic. And we need to remember while this is happening that we don't want to confuse passivity for peace. Passivity for peace. I don't do anything. I don't worry about anything. I don't think about anything. I just know. And some people really do feel like that's a peace. I'm passive. I don't worry about it. I close my doors, I close my eyes to the struggles that are going on around me, and that's peace. And some of us, that's the only way we could get peace in a sense, until you have Jesus at the center, Or arrogance as self-righteous indignation. Or, as, I'm sorry, as arrogance as righteous indignation. Some people are just arrogant, but they, they rephrase that into being righteous indignation or something like that. Jesus has called us to humility, and He's called us to do battle in the Spirit. Battle in the Spirit. I think some of the most powerful prayers in battle against darkness is not ones with words, but ones with tears. Ones with tears. My favorite verse. I told you my favorite verse last week, didn't I? Well, I'm going to tell you my other favorite verse this week. Psalm 126, and at the end, those last two verses, it says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Imagine if a farmer. Here's, here's how we get to farm. I get to farm with tears over the souls of my loved ones. I get to sh- sh- sow tears. of, and, and where did those tears come from? And I said this well in a meeting with, actually, Noah this, this week. And I said, it's just like, It was almost like I was grasping to find words for this in my heart. But I said it's like I'm standing in between the nourished great love that I have for God and His magnificence and how real He is. And then the person that I love deeply and sincerely, no matter how bad or how difficult or even the pain they've brought me, and I look at the gap and I want to close that gap. See, the Holy Spirit wants to do something inside of us. To, there's an anguish for the promises of God. There's a deep, deep anguish is to see the fulfillment of God's Word in needy, needy souls. And so when God lets you in the middle of that, I think that's what spiritual warfare and this battle and this conflict has something to do with. And so when we do this, when we when we get in the middle and God somehow helps us get there, there's such a spiritual force at work that you can't help but feel like i don't i don't think i'm bringing it together but i think this is a part of it and i don't know why and my heart is burning for the promises of god and fulfillment and imagine jesus saying here from heaven i could just give this but this is what's special and powerful about i think what god's work is in the lives of his of his children is this but if what i could do could have, could have more of their joy, their heart, and their their um, commitment tied, tied to it, then I want them to enjoy it to the fullest. And so sometimes that gap is that greater longing. How many of you have been out in the heat and thirsty, thirsty, thirsty? And the longer you're out there and the less you have water, the more thirsty you get. What does that first drink of water taste like? It's, it's like a euphoria in a sense. It's this ecstasy that happens in a sense. Just a drink of water, something we take for granted every day of our life. But now that thirst drew it out of me. And I feel like that's what God is doing. When we're praying and we're seeing it, He's not saying, hey, I'm off the sidelines, just deferring the problem. I'm creating a deeper hunger in your heart and joining you deeper so that when this happens, you'll have birthed in your heart, the promises of God. So when we realize the world is in conflict, it's no strange thing to us. It's no strange thing that we could do battle all week long and know that the world is in conflict even after. But I'll tell you, there's something sweet about having somebody that you've seen them struggling spiritually. This is a pastoral thing, but this is a Christian thing. You see them struggling spiritually. You see their past eating them up. And not only that, but you see them struggling about the gospel and is Jesus real and those things. And then to watch Jesus do his work. I didn't tell them. God did it to them. But it's wonderful to see the Lord bring deliverance and salvation and be on the other side of that and just love and bask in what God has done. So true peace must be defined. I want to give you an illustration of what I would call a counterfeit because I think that's what If we're going to define peace, we're also going to have to understand what his counterfeit is. I remember we had, this is a number of years ago, and I want to call him a friend, but he was much older than I was. He was an adult presence when I was a teenager. And did you have a question in the back? Okay. Um, And so he was, and I can't remember the details, but I do remember, they set out a deer decoy somewhere. And I don't know that it was in season, but anyway, it tempted him when he wasn't supposed to be, to shoot at the wrong animal at the wrong time. But it was a counterfeit. It wasn't the real thing. And I remember the frustration he had that he fell for the counterfeit. And he got under the deception of the counterfeit. Not only that, but he had to deal with some of the legal procedures because of the counterfeit. And how many of us have been there in a point in our life that there's something that looked real and we got stuck in it and we got deceived by it and it, it hit us and we dealt with the pain of it? And so the decoy here is this. The decoy is that the devil wants to send out a peace, a cultural happiness, as it were, to satisfy us and keep us from what God has for us. I want to give, this was my time as I was spending it before the Lord, I thought, if I could just take into mind the the mentality of the world and the liberalism and the wokeness of our day, and I could put it together, how would I define this? And so this is the definition that was birthed out of thinking about that and putting it together. And this is what I would call the popular definition of peace. This is not the right definition, but this is a definition for what I would call the decoy. Peace is when the world can embrace me as I wish to be. It is when the cultural finally shifts toward relativity so that the subjective... And personal interests can be lived out without the biases of others infringing on myself or others. I will purpose to lend to others this same courtesy so long as they do the same for me. The freedom of choice, and I want you to hear this, the freedom of choice is at the heart of peace. And the quicker we can get out from under the tyranny of a cultural norm's that prevent our freedom of expression, the sooner we will enjoy true peace. Now, that is not my definition. That is what I believe is the cultural definition. If we could put it in words, if I could say culture, give me a definition for what you call peace, that's what I would call it. It's all about me, and the culture needs to shift to work for me. I want to be able to have the freedom of how I want to express myself And do whatever I want, however I want. I want to be the God in my life. And not anything within the world around me to diminish or get in the way of that. And so really their idea would be that freedom of choice is at the heart of peace. Think about that. I want you to think about that thought. And if any of you are wanting that definition later on, I can give it to you. Uh, You don't necessarily have to write it down. Just come back to me. There's this thing of you can't be biased against me. Your biases create a warfare that keeps me from living life the way I want to. And as far as I'm concerned, my life is a good life. And what I want is good. And I'm not really a bad person. And I might do some things that are kind of awkward. But ultimately, there's nothing about it that's really ultimately wrong. So why can't you let me live the way I want to live? Why can't you let me be the way I want to be? And the problem is this is that kind of peace tells us there's no warfare, there's no problem among mankind. That I your definition of peace and my definition of peace, your definition of freedom of expression and my definition of freedom of expression will ne- never come in conflict with one another as long as we respect each other's definition. Of well, the problem is, is humanity is always longing to in, longing to go beyond its rightful place. And I will use you to get my happiness. And that is what we call freedom of expression, selfish use of other people. How do you do this? How do you have peace when that's the framework of humanity? It only would work if it could work, as if we weren't like that. So, the biblical definition of peace, I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Turn your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. That you put off, and this was in my prayer time this week, that you put off concerning your former conduct. Come on. You hear it? We can stop right there. That you put it off. You're concerning your former conduct. The old man. Now we're not talking about age. We're talking about the way I used to be. It doesn't doesn't serve God's purpose anymore. Which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The deceitful lust, you could name that the lust to gratify myself above all else. And be renewed. So it tells us do two things. Put off. And then it tells us be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm going to tell you something. This is my experience. Ask Christians. You don't need to ask the world. Just ask Christians. Do you believe that you're living a holy life? I would not be surprised if you would hear them say no. I don't feel like I'm living a holy life. Because they know there's gaps. I sin, I do some wrong things, all of that other thing. But notice that the Bible isn't telling us to live righteousness in gaps. It's telling us to live righteous and holy. But notice what it's coming out of. It's not coming out of an old man. It's coming out of a, a new man. And notice what it, how it happens. It's renewed. We're renewed in the spirit of our mind. So the Spirit of God is renewing our minds. That's why I, I'm, I'm broken hearted when we find people aren't in their Bibles. They're not in their Bibles. And in, in anything, they're looking for the special recipe in the Bible. No, find Jesus in the Bible. And so we're renewed by the Spirit of God. We read, but the Spirit of God gives us divine understanding. The Spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which was created according to God. In true righteousness and holiness. So we're putting off and we're putting on. We're putting on something new. We're putting off that which was old. I've had a few conversations and I would say the problem I'm seeing is one of the reasons why they're not ready to put on the new is because they're not ready to put off the old. And one of the reasons they're not putting off the old is because they're not ready to put on the new. They both go hand in hand. Oftentimes, when we talk about repentance, what we're saying is your view of the subject has changed, so your way of life is going to change with the newness of view. You're going to do things different, not just because you're doing something different, because you see this completely differently. So, biblical peace pulls us out of the free for all ideals that leave us victims to a self serving culture that take the freedom of expression to extreme levels of abusing and using others for the sake of self-gratification, of which liberal ideals must condone in order to gain freedom from themselves. So here's my thought on this. You tell me that the way you get peace is that if we learn to be agreeable with one another about each other's differences... That's how we find this. But the problem that we face is that you want peace at the expense of my own. That's how you get your happiness. So if in order for your freedom of expression, you have to shut mine up, that's how you get yours. But what you didn't do is you didn't calculate that into the definition. What you did was you decided that there was some euphoria in your head that was going to work for the world. And that was going to work in that if we all just were happy with one another and that you just condoned me and I condoned you and we did all of that, then where do you put thievery into that? Where do you put adultery into that? Where do you put all these awful sins into that? And somehow they think that that's going to go away. And what the problem is, is they don't have any addressing for that. That's why there's no peace in it. Because there's still conflict that's going to happen. Human conflict. And they're ignorant of that whole idea. And calling us to believe it. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Either they're not saying it completely, but that's the idea behind it. So the liberal has to condone. And it's interesting, because if you get an intake on some of this that's happening, and some of these guys like... uh, Um, uh, some of our Christian apologists that are actually arguing in favor of God. And what you're finding more and more is this idea that once you begin to tap into, there's no more moral objectives. There's no more moral objective. It's all subjective. So how do you feel about what's right and wrong? And, And of course, there's going to be a subjective level, but the objective level is what makes the subjective level right or wrong, ultimately. But the idea is this, is that once we begin to say that it's no longer objective, that it can be all based on everybody's personal opinions, then now we don't have to feel guilty for wrongdoing. The problem is no wrongdoing exists. It can't. Not under those headlines. Because ultimately we would say this, if if this happens, what we want, the ideal is this, that nobody's going to abuse me in order to have their freedom. That's the ideal. But the moment that changes, the ideal goes out the door. This whole philosophy does no longer exist. So you can't have biblical peace that works in this way. So biblical peace number two does not call the world or culture to embrace our our definition or our personal definition of freedom of expression nor does it necessarily regard your convictions in the Bible. So even if as a Christian, the world and the culture continues to push me away as a Christian, that's not what this peace is based on that Jesus has given us. It confronts the superiority. Biblical peace confronts the superiority of the self-life in us so that we can authentically love God and others even if we're hated for it. The only way that we're going to have peace with God if it deals with the root of the problem in its selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness demands, you must love me and like me and condone me and all of that. That's childishness. we battled with that as parents constantly. No, my son, my daughter, you can't just... Whenever we go to the market, I can't condone any kind of behavior you have because you have this role of selfishness that you, you want mommy and daddy to say yes to. We're going to have to change this in order to make it work with others. So really what's missing in the world's idea of peace is that it's trying to get the world to cultivate to its own selfishness rather than I empty of selfishness and the culture doesn't define that. And that's what Jesus, I think in Luke, when Jesus was born in a manger, that's what Jesus was coming to undo in us. Biblical peace, thirdly, biblical peace is harmonized with the moral magnificence of God. And the measure by which we get to enjoy it is based on the level at which we embrace His purity. One more time. Biblical peace is harmonized with the moral magnificence of God and the measure by which we get to enjoy it. So how much, at what level, you enjoy it is based on the level at which we embrace His purity. Today you can be a Christian adulterer. Today you can be a a Christian who loves... Absolute secularism. And you can be invested in it. Today you can be a Christian with gossip. Today you can be a Christian who demoralizes others to make yourself big. At some point we have to realize this has to go. But how does it go? It's because we get involved in the beauty and the purity of God. We embrace it. We get involved in it. We let our lives become all about it. I want to share with you this quote. It says this, By this we see that the promises of God are really given freely. And we are also to see that they are received only by those who are truly pure in heart. Purity is the channel in which God's promises can flow through. And purity is without merit and carries with it a virtue for our unworthiness. Purity holds with it the humility that does not destroy the gifts of love or manipulate God's grace into self-serving ends. Purity lends us to God and it further's his will by making us fit to receive from him and lending no limit as to how much we may give, he may give or on how much we may receive. I think Jesus said it really well. They that are pure in heart shall see God. Um, and there's so many other places in the Bible. Go do a search on purity. I mean, we're looking for peace, but we're not looking for purity. Understand the attachments. My kids, as they were young, they'd, uh, they'd have their Lego sets and they would build them. And some of them phenomenal. And you know, when I was a kid, Legos, they were very basic. So you had to use some unique Blending in order to create something that opened, bigger doors that open besides the ones I gave you. But nowadays they have parts that are just remarkable. But the thought behind this is this, is that when we think of peace, we got to realize the other Legos that come on to it. We build this as it becomes one thing. And so oftentimes in our culture is this, we want peace without the other parts that go along with it. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. So then we have to define, if we're going to do that, we have to define not only the peace, but we have to define purity. And again, I think it's within, it makes sense to me that we take some time today and say, if we could put the culture together and we could put their definition into purity, what would it be? How would they do that? So purity is paramount for peace. Purity is paramount for peace. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 8 and 9, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Western culture today is trying to convince us that purity is based on being true to yourself. And letting others do the same as an ultimate end so it's about being true to myself and letting others do the same as an ultimate end if in order to maintain your personal utopia of being the best the so if in order to maintain your personal utopia of being the most pure you you have to cancel others around you then do so relationships are secondary to personal happiness relationships are secondary to personal happiness That's why marriages are failing. Because what you want, you want first and foremost before you're willing to give what they need. And it's a battle. It's a reason why we cannot maintain good relationships for long periods of time because because we're the first and foremost. And so purity really would be invested in this idea of peace. If I can be true to the real me, and that the culture can begin to be redesigned to fit that, then I can have both purity and peace within that framework, and you can move God out of the picture. But biblical purity is on the basis of this, Second Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. So if you'll go there to your Bibles, yes, I know it's up there, so if you don't have a Bible, you can... That's all we, you know, we only put those up there for the people who don't have their Bibles with them. You guys that have your Bibles, you have to open up and find it. As a matter of fact, next Sunday you have to bring your highlighter with you so that you can highlight those verses too. You don't want them ever to get lost. Second Chronicles, Chronicles, chapter seven, verse thirteen and fourteen. And uh, don't confuse that with Second Corinthians. I'm just joking. Second Chronicles 7, 13, 14. Most of us are pretty familiar with these verses. But the one, actually, it's the, the 14th verse we're mostly familiar with. It's the 13th verse that we actually oftentimes escape. You almost never even hear it said. Are you there? Awesome. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among My people. If My people who are called by My name will humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. How many of you knew that the Gospel The New Testament revelation of God was hidden in the Old Testament right here in 2 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, who put their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, will call upon me in faith in the sacrifice of Christ, knowing that they couldn't do it themselves, and humble themselves and pray, and in light of the sacrifice of Jesus, and turning their hearts to know that He's the reason they'll be forgiven, will uh, repent of their sin and turn to Me. I will forgive their sin. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isn't that a wonderful promise that we get to experience while we trust in Jesus? I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. You know what I wonder is this. I wonder if the churches of Wallowa County, including this pastor right now, understand what God just said here. Maybe we're waiting the emphasis. What are we waiting on, essentially? Maybe Wallowa County is waiting on God to do something miraculous. Maybe the unsaved in Wallowa County are waiting for us to talk Louder. Maybe what's really what was really waiting is this, is God is wanting to release something. But whatever's in our hearts is actually preventing it. Because God says, I want to do a work in you the first thing, and then I want to do a work in others. So our family members and the people that are tied to us, we're like, how come they're not following Jesus? And I think this goes back to us is, if my people, which are called by my name, the land, the struggle of the community is wrapped around, rather my people are in a right relationship with me. So when we come closer and closer to Christmas, and we're, if we're not careful, we'll analyze it again. And we could have done this on Thanksgiving. We're going to analyze it based upon the traditions and things that are happening without being connected to the meaning and the purpose for which we're doing this. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says, In what kind of habitation pleases God? What must our natures be like before He can feel at home within us? He asks nothing but a pure heart and a single mind. He asks no rich paneling, no rugs of the Orient, no art of treasures from afar. He desires a sincerity, transparency, humility, and love. He will see to the rest. He will see to the rest. That's all God wanted was. And this is the thing. The battle for purity is the greatest battle of our lives. The battle for real purity is the greatest battle of our lives. Because everything around us, everywhere you go, is actually introducing everything opposite of purity. There's so much compromise or blatant contrast and conflict with purity that it's a daily fight to go there. I love Joseph in our men's meeting. And he'll say that the battle is always an uphill battle. And it's so true. Everything is an uphill battle. But that's what God wants is purity in it. So can I be in an impure world and retain purity? Well, we know Noah did. We know Noah did. We know many others have done it. Not perfect to perfection, but they did it. And so purity is the precious. If I would say anything... There's, this is a gift that's not under the tree. This is a gift that nobody's going to give to you. This is a gift that you need though. This is something that we need that we should, if we're going to spend money for, if it could be spent for, we'd spend every dime to have it its purity. We need this purity or we can know nothing of this peace. We can know absolutely nothing of the peace that God promises. Biblical purity is about being true to God, not to yourself. And isn't that really, if you want to get down to it, isn't that the truest being true to yourself that you really could be? Is to make sure that God is the highlight and the end of your life. Humanism is about this idea that I come first. So biblical purity is about being true to God and recalculating and reordering everything in your life to this end out of which we see the absolute promises of God attached to. Look at the promises all over the Bible. And I love this. This has been my promise for these last few weeks that uh the he says that um if uh, now I'm trying to remember the I'll get it in, in a second. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't you see? Because like, I'm not going to ruin my children. I'm not going to ruin you by giving you something that's gonna, that you're going to use to mess up yourself with, but I will give it to you when it's connected to me. Delight yourself in the Lord and I will give you the desires of your heart. Man, there's a lot that I could pray under that. That's a promise I'm going to hold on to out of which the absolute promises God are attached to. Biblical purity guarantees us Victory. And biblical peace. Biblical purity guarantees us victory and biblical peace. Our counseling. We would never have a need for a counselor if we just followed this rule of life. Most of our pastors would be just uh, celebrating alongside our side. If, that's what, if ministry was never about having to bring this to bear upon the consciences of others. Make sure that God is the center of your life. So, this is our battle plan for Luke chapter 11, or chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. This is our battle plan in light of Jesus coming. Is that our battle plan is to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward man, is obtaining this peace from the Lord. This is the peace of God. You know, friends, I would say this it's really troublesome because I know a lot of us have gone through or are going through. I don't know. I don't know my audience perfectly. I don't know everything, but I can say this. And sometimes the, the, the deciding factor is, am I ever going to have relief? Is this ever going to go away? Is this ever going to change? Don't lose the peace of God because you got stuck on some outward thing that doesn't have any reference To what Jesus can do on the inside of your heart. Though the outward man perishes, Paul says it powerfully, though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Day by day. And so here's this is this is my heart, but I I gotta say this. I've got to say because if you're gonna win at the peace thing, if you're gonna win at this, you've got to stop getting to the place, you quit praying. Because life gets difficult. All of us. We've got to stop dying off and putting our Bible on a shelf and letting it collect dust. We've got to stop watching TV or getting on the, in the internet as our, bra- our embrace for wholeness and happiness. We've got to get past the fact that there are certain things that are still going to happen... And I can be on the rail of peace while they're happening. The world's going to be out of control still. There's still going to be battles on the front line. But I have peace with God because of there's an unaltering, unbending truth that is in Jesus. And if we get there, our prayer rooms are going to be full. Our churches are not going to come to a place of an end. And people are going to flock because we have real life coming in. You know, John Wesley, he must have had it because John Wesley preached 40,000 sermons over the space of what I believe to be about 60, 61 years. When you calculate that out, that's about two sermons a day. Two sermons a day. They said the average life of... What, not the Methodists you see today, but the Methodists back then, the average lifespan of a Methodist preacher was 32 years old. And the reason is, is because they would ride in weather like this on horseback. They would go to towns in the next place and continue to preach the word from place to place two two or three times a day, weary themselves out to do so. John Wesley lived to be a ripe age of, I think, 87 years old. And he was one of those. And, and there was a story once said that he woke up, froze to the ground. Woo! Wow, I haven't even begun yet. He woke up, froze to the ground. And he had to pull his arms loose and his legs loose, pull his body up off the frozen ground, and he got, off, got up and sang the doxology. Wow. Now, I believe that's not the product of a man who's about legalism, That's not a product of somebody that takes lightly the the words of Jesus. That's somebody who's actually found the life that is in. That's somebody who understands the peace of God. Read that story. Amazing. Man, and I would never say, hey, I'm your example. Man, not when you have men like that out there. And then you have Jesus and Paul the Apostle as an example. So let's do this together. Let's walk there together. And I want to just say this. I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you this morning to not be content with where you're at. I want to challenge you to look for God's next place of growth in your life and bring anything and everything out in the open. Lord, here I am. Jesus, I am, and I'm not here just to stay that way. I'm here for you to change me. Every one of us need more from Jesus. Every every one of us need to be closer to him. Let's do that this morning. I'm going to invite you here to the altar and to take communion with that in in mind. And we want to have that time together. I'm going to first, if I remember right, I'm going to serve some of the elders of our church first. Um, But I want to take a few minutes before we do to have some worship, some personal reflection, and some time with God. You know this. I want to tell you this. I never needed a reason to get to the altar. I never needed a reason. The altar was a place of a miracle could happen. That's what I always looked at. You can you can give me as long as there's